This is an ABC podcast. On air, online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Meg Powell on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Good afternoon and a packed out show today, starting with the closure of a West Coast mine. Just over a year ago, after 13 years in care and maintenance, excitement at the reopened Avebury Nickel Mine on Tasmania's West Coast was high. Production was in full swing, jobs were on offer, the town of Zeehan was full. Jeremy, you on Jumbo, mate? If so, where are you? But that mine is closing once again, receivers have announced today, and we'll have more on that coming up in just a moment on the Country Hour. Meg Powell with you today. Hello, bringing you the Country Hour from the beautiful northwest, from the quite sunny Burnie. Today, Drama in the dairy industry, surprise farm checks at Fair Work by Fair Work inspectors and stressed out strawberries coming to you in the second half of the show. We'll also be checking in on the weather at the halfway mark, of course, as usual. And I'd love to hear from you. Maybe you're a West Coaster, maybe a former West Coaster. You'd certainly be no stranger to the booms and busts of mining. We're talking the Avebury Nickel Mine today, going into care and maintenance again how does that affect the community? And I might just not, it's not just to the West Coast, it's, it happens all across Tassie, it happens all across Australia. Text in 0438 or better yet, use the ABC Listen app and you don't even have to remember a number, you can just send me a message from there. I'm Meg Powell and this is the Tasmanian Country Hour. Regatta Day is a public holiday in Hobart. Now we're talking Tasmania. And what better place to spend a summer day off than the local pool? I'm Joel Weinberger, and on Monday, I'm taking my program to the new Norfolk pool. So grab that inflated inner tube from a tractor tyre and join us. We'll be racing boats, doing bombs, eating ice blocks, and being told to stop running. Come and have a swim with me. Or tune into Afternoons live at the pool on Monday. Afternoons with Joel Reinberger on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, that's Afternoons, but it's the country hour for now from 12 to 1. And I'm Meg Power bringing it to you from Burnie. Starting off with the Avebury Nickel Mine on Tasmania's West Coast, which will transition into a care and maintenance program. Receivers and managers of mine operator Mali Resources today announced... The mine near Zeehan employs about 200 people and it's the latest victim in a string of Australian mines to fold in the wake of a nickel boom in Indonesia. Receiver Scott Langdon said an oversupply of low-quality nickel from Southeast Asia made the higher-quality but higher-cost Australian ores uncompetitive. The price of nickel was currently sitting at fifteen to $1,600 a tonne on the London Metal Exchange, which they say is more than 50% lower than the price at the start of the year. Tasmanian Minister Roger Yench spoke to reporters this morning and was asked about the situation. I also have a quick question on the mine that's closed down in the northwest. Um, Avery. Avery. Um, what does that mean for the, for the local area up there? I know it employs about 200 people. And the loss of any employer in a regional economy is, uh, is really, really bad news. Um, what we're hoping is that the majority of those workers and the contractors who are part of that operation are, are able to find other uh, engagement in what is a thriving industry on, on the West Coast as well. But it's a reminder of 
um, how uh, decisions that are about those those major employers in those remote areas can send a ripple out through those communities. We've also got a community at Strawn and on the west coast there which is waiting with bated breath to see what uh, Tanya Plibersek and the Albanese government decide regarding the future of salmon farming in Macquarie Harbour. Um, we believe that we have shown that we've got a management system there which can ensure that we have a sustainable salmon industry and we can ensure the survival of the Morgean skate and other creatures that live in that um, habitat down there. We've been adaptively managing that uh, for the 12 years since the decision was made uh, that is currently under review. We don't believe it needs to be changed and we support uh, that industry uh, and the conservation efforts that are away underway there as well. But if you know, we've got a west coast economy uh, where we've got one um, uh, industry under threat uh, there from a uh, question mark that needs to be answered by the federal government, We've got a change in, in circumstances uh, for one of our major mines down there. We've got the MMG operation at Rosebury also waiting on Minister Plibersek. We need to, again, just like with government, provide certainty and stability for that economy, the people who live and work on the West Coast and who rely on those industries to, to support them. Um, certainty and stability are important for our economy. They're important for families who are making commitments to live in Tasmania, particularly in regional areas, to send their kids to school and to show their kids that there's a future for them and that it's worth staying at school and worth going you know, the extra years and backing themselves in because there's an economy out there that needs and wants you. That's the message we've got to send. That's why it's important that we work with our industries, that we support jobs and that we make sure that all of our kids are getting every day uh, at school they can because every school day matters. What will the state government do to support those affected workers in the short term? We will work closely with the um, receivers, administrators there uh, on their plans and timing. Uh, we'll engage with that workforce and we are also working closely with other mines and miners uh, in Tasmania uh, who may be looking for people uh, to ensure that we don't lose those jobs. Liberal Tasmanian member for Braddon, Roger Yench there, speaking about news the Avebury nickel mine will go back into care and maintenance. Coming up, a response from Labor. G'day, this is Becky Cole inviting you to join me each week for Saturday Night Country. For more than 30 years, we've been playing the best in Australian country music, as well as the overseas artists that you know and love. So whether it's the classic tunes that you grew up with, the best new releases or the interviews of your favourite acts. You'll find it all on Saturday Night Country. Saturday Night Country, here at any time on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Meg Powell on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. That's right, Meg Powell here, bringing you the Country Hour in Tasmania today from Burnie. Uh, we just heard from Minister Roger Yench, who was speaking about the situation down on the West Coast, the Avebury Nickel Mine, which is going into uh, care and maintenance. It was announced today. I've got on the line Shane Broad, Labor Braddon MP Shane Broad and Shadow Resources Minister for Tasmania. He released a statement this morning concerned about the impact of the mine closing. Good afternoon, Shane, and... Uh, Welcome to the Country Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Mr Broad, to start with, uh, your reaction to the news, please. Well, I think it's devastating, really. Um, it throws uh, uncertainty to, to all those workers and their families who 
not who won't know tonight um, what their options are. And um, I've got some significant concerns. One is about, obviously, those workers, but also about their entitlements, because what we know is the situation is complicated with receivers in place, which means that their entitlements may get caught up in some long legal process. So they may not see any of the money that they deserve uh, for a long period of time. So that, that's still uncertain as well. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty and that's not good for anybody. What kind of impact can that have on a community such as Zeon? Zeon, the mine's only 10 kilometres from Zeon. It's a very small community. 200 jobs has got to take a bit of a hit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there'll be 200 less workers coming in and out of the town. And we know a lot of these uh, the workers are uh, drive-in, drive-out. They, they may not... There wouldn't be many that actually live in Zeon um, with their families. A lot would drive in from the northwest coast or the wider west coast. So this spreads... It's not just about Zen, it's about the whole northwest coast and then it's about the whole state economy. 200 people on the dole queue puts pressure on everybody. So I really hope that other mines can step up and take these employees, or as many as they can, but let's hope that their entitlements aren't caught up. But the, the big issue, I think, is about the administrate, the, the company being in receivership, really, because what that means is that... The receivers may have made a different decision than owners would have. So we know that there's been a bunch of nickel mines shut because of the the, the cheap uh, nickel coming out of Indonesia. But it's obviously sometime down the track, maybe in 12 months' time, there'll be a rebound. So a an owner may have decided to, to take a hit in the short term, knowing that the price is going to go up because there's still huge demand for high-quality nickel. But because we've got receivers... They have different considerations, and obviously their consideration is not to lose any money, so put it in care and maintenance. I mean, so that can, is a huge problem. Can anything be done there, though? It is a private company, and it's up to them what they do. Well, no, it's the receivers. So, oh, public um, companies, sorry. Well, I think we've got to actually wind the clock back, and I, I know that I was screaming out for the government to, to assist the, um, the owners of Avery to stay out of receivership. What we've seen is some quite predatory action from Alenda Hartree, who um, basically have forced the hand and, and put the company into receivership. So um, the government were promising relief from, um, uh, from um, all sorts of things. So they, had, they, um, they promised um, relief from uh, their... Um, uh, Sorry, there was the power bill was, was one thing. So that Aurora was holding a huge bond and the other one was about the payroll tax relief that they were promised way back in 2018. Uh, they refused to come to, the board, uh, come to the party, even though they promised. And that meant that the company was short of money and the predatory lender ended up getting control of the company. So um, maybe the situation would be different if the government had actually come through with what they promised. I really feel for the workforce because I know that a lot of people who actually moved from you know, other well-paid, good jobs to take up the opportunity at Avery, and now they'll be scratching their head about what they can do tomorrow. Surely it's not up to the government, though, to bail out a mining company from the booms and busts of, of industry? <laughs> well, no. Well, we could have um, prevented a company going into receivership. Uh, this... this um, this company may be sold for sale now, um, and 
But that, that could have been staved off, I believe, if the government had acted. So for a small investment, um, and basically what the government had already promised, we could not only have the workers in a better position, but in the long term, the state would be better off because of the royalties and the, the taxes that the state receives. So for a relatively modest outlay, and it was a period of, in time where the government could have helped stave off um, administration and then receivership, and now we're too far down that road. So um, I think the government has a role to play when, when 200 jobs are at stake in a community like Zeehan. Uh, it, it's such, such an important mine to keep going, uh, but I think we're, we're past it now. So, but the government needs to step up and ensure now that the workers' um, entitlements aren't caught up in some you know, legal process that could take years. Realistically, is there anything the government can do? Well, I think that the government needs to um, needs to do that to ensure, in the first instance, that the entitlements of the workers are, are met. We're going from uh, 200 workers down to care and maintenance, which could be, uh, I'm sure they'll announce a figure later in the day, but it could be only a dozen. So there'll be a lot of people who are owed their entitlements um, if they don't, if they've got no idea when they're going to receive them, that has an impact on on people. And you go from a wage to zero rather than a wage to entitlements, which may uh, tide you over until you can get another job. So I think that's the immediate issue. Uh, long term, I think we need a government that that keeps their promises. So they didn't in this instance. They didn't support Avebury like they promised. Um, and that's further complicated this system. It may assist this situation. It may not have actually stopped the situation, but it's certainly complicated it. No doubt we'll be hearing more on this story unfolding today. We'll be hearing from the union later this afternoon and, of course, more from the government. Labor Braddon MP Shane Broad and Shadow Resources Minister for Tasmania, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Meg. See you later. Let's look a little wider now at the nickel situation because Avebury, as we've just heard, is the latest mine to close in a string of nickel mines folding in Australia, at least four in Western Australia in the last month. Players such as Andrew Twiggy Forrest are saying market demand just isn't there to the point that just two weeks ago, Australia's mining industry and the federal government were having emergency talks. Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King says one option is to try to convince other countries to pay a premium for ethically sourced resources from Australia. It's a different competition than it was uh, six or seven years ago and that makes it difficult sometimes for Australian businesses to compete when we do have much higher standards than many of the other nickel producers in the world. Uh, So that's how we can work together to get to a Uh, A good position for that nickel industry is what I want to talk to industry about. Yeah, and if there is such fluctuation in the market, what realistically can government do? Well, what we know is that Australia produces nickel well. And when I say, well, you know, we have good governance, we have good environmental processes, we have uh, good consultation with the traditional owners of land, 
We have high work standards and very high safety standards. People are well paid in the industry. And that's not necessarily the case with our competitors. We are a high cost uh, country, but, but that's a good thing because it means that our people are getting paid well so that, you know, uh, that they have a high standard of living. So then you've got to compete uh, with, with lower cost producing countries. So what some of the suggestions have been is around how do you account for that high ethical standard of nickel production in the price of nickel and the pricing of nickel. Now that's an international markets question and it's really, you know, something I'm trying to grapple with, but this is what federal governments are here to do is to lead international discussions on how you can, you know, make sure there is a premium on ethically sourced and ethically produced high standard nickel sulphide. Uh, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about later this week. Federal Resources Minister Madeline King speaking to Joe Trilling there. Now, a number of mining industry analysts don't believe Australia's critical mineral sector deserves a taxpayer-funded lifeline. This follows last week's announcement that yet another nickel mine is about to close in Western Australia. And, of course, news today that the Avebury nickel mine on Tasmania's west coast will close. Last month, those crisis talks were held between state and federal governments, industry leaders and unions, where some options like the royalty relief were being discussed. But mine life analyst Gavin Went doesn't think these sorts of measures are warranted. Well, my view is that uh, what we're experiencing in the nickel industry in Australia and worldwide is just part of the ongoing commodity cycle the boom and bust cycle that is prevalent throughout the ages within commodities. And we've seen it right across the board for commodities. We see periods of rising demand, uh, increasing supply, falling prices, rising prices. Commodity prices rarely stay still. And quite often we're in periods of of boom and bust. Uh, That is the nature really of, of the commodity sector. There is a lot of volatility and what we're going through now with uh, nickel prices is a, is a superior, significant period of weakness. But um, I wouldn't be in favour of, of, of government intervention. I think that would be quite unprecedented and um, quite unwarranted. I mean, so long as commodity markets can function transparently, then that is all we can ask for. And as the nature of participants, they understand the risks when they get involved in the commodity business, that there are periods of rising prices. There are also periods of falling prices. So um, I think that's really important to bear in mind. We can look at other industries, for example, in the manufacturing and the fact that we had a car industry and there are very strong arguments for and against and there are very, very loud voices, those that believe in the free market and say, hey, we should not be subsidising, provide any assistance to our car industry, our motor vehicle industry. It should be able to stand on its own two feet, even though there were circumstances where other countries, regional neighbours offered tax rates that were significantly lower than ours and wage rates that were significantly below ours. So you could argue that it wasn't necessarily a level playing field, but nevertheless, the support and the incentives uh, and the subsidies were withdrawn. We no longer have a car industry. So I don't think you can apply one argument, say our industry should be competitive and uh, should be determined by market forces in one instance, and then say, hey, 
our, our industry is a, is, a, is a separate case because as far as I'm concerned in the nickel industry, there's nothing nefarious going on. It's just the fact that markets are currently oversupplied and they're oversu- oversupplied at the moment with a lot of very uh, low-cost nickel coming out of Indonesia. Mine Life analyst Gavin Went speaking to Alice Marshall. It'd help if I turn the microphone on every once in a while. Another independent mining analyst, Peter Strawn, says in the la- in the past twelve to eighteen months, Australia's nickel industry has ballooned out to an unsustainable level. And you can read more on that story by searching ABC Rural and Nickel. It's uh, 12.25 and heading over now to the dairy industry because dairy giant Fonterra has dumped a 25 million litre milk contract with historic Woolnorth owners Van Dairy Limited. Fonterra Australia Farm Source Director Matt Watt declined to discuss the issues but confirmed the decision was based on a number of commercial factors the two parties had been unable to resolve. Mr Watts said Fonterra had not collected milk from any VDL farm since February 1 and had provided Van Dairy with several months' notice. He also said no milk is being dumped as the farms have been dried off. Van Dairy owner Jean Fong Lu says he is disappointed by the development but remains fully committed to his dairy farms and the Circular Head region. And Mr Watts said his team had been working with other farms to secure alternative milk supply for Fonterra. It's now 12.26. In a heartwarming new season... I'm a bit shy and I'm fairly risk-averse. I'm 22 and I'm ready to start dating. Meet the singles looking for love. It's just really scary. I am unique, fabulous, don't forget that. I think I'm crushing a little bit. I would like to kiss someone. The brand new season of Better Date Than Never. No time. Starts Tuesday, February 20 on ABC TV and ABC iView. Always free, always entertaining. You're with Meg Powell and the Country Hour on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up in just a second, we're going to talk. We're going to talk prices again, supermarket prices, uh, price gouging, unfair pricing practices. But before that, this just in from Mayor Shane Pitt, who's the mayor of the West Coast Council, where the Avebury Nickel Mine is located, and he says that the closure of that mine is a devastating blow for the West Coast. He says those word work, hard-working West Coasters had a job yesterday, but not today, and that's a massive financial and emotional whack to every worker and their families. This is going to have an impact for mo- weeks, months, and years ahead for Apri workers and our wider region. He's calling uh, for the state government to step up and stand side by side with the community in those tough times and also invest $5 million immediately in this strategic regional partnership and then another $5 million across the next three years. It goes on a little bit like that. No doubt we'll have more on that coming up, but it's time we turn our attention back to the supermarkets because former competition regulator boss Alan Fells says there's much more government can do can do more to rein in business price gouging and unfair pricing practices. He was commissioned by the union ACTU to look at the issue and today released his report at the National Press Club. The cause is weak and ineffective competition in too many sectors of the economy. Two policies are needed. First... The Australian government needs to act on high prices to investigate their nature and causes 
and where possible their remedies. The remedies don't include price controls, but there is much that governments can do. Secondly, greatly strengthen competition policy to remove or weaken market power, which enables the excessive prices to be charged. So the focus is the effects of prices on ordinary people, on workers, on uh, farmers, uh, on poor and disadvantaged people. In my report, I refer to prices going up quicker than they fall. Petrol is a well-known example. Goes up fast, falls slowly. This is sometimes called the rocket and feathers effect. When costs rise, business prices rise fast, like a rocket. When costs fall, business prices fall slowly to the ground, like a feather. It's very profitable to delay price falls. A recent example, well known, concerns meat. Now, as inflation starts to fall, I'm concerned there may be a rockets and feathers effect on prices. We want business to play its role. Having played a role in getting prices up, we want it to play a role in getting them down like rockets, not feathers. Former ACCC Chairman Professor Alan Fells speaking at the National Press Club yesterday about his findings into price gouging and unfair pricing policies. Well, we've uh, hit the 12.30 mark now. It's time for news headlines with Evan Wallace. Good afternoon, Meg. Both of Tasmania's Roe Independent MPs have rejected an ultimatum from Premier Jeremy Rockliffe. Independent MP John Tucker has spoken ahead of his meeting with Mr Rockliffe tomorrow after the Premier issued an ultimatum last week demanding they not support Labor and Green motions or amendments in Parliament. Mr Tucker says he rejects the demand. In his letter to the two independents, Premier Jeremy Rockliffe described the Parliament as unworkable unless there is a new agreement. Mediators from the US, Qatar and Egypt are scrambling to forge a ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. It comes after the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said there was still hope for a deal. Australia has joined with the United States, United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand in blaming China for hacks against critical US infrastructure. Spy agencies from across the Five Eyes intelligence partners are warning the state-sponsored Chinese group Vault Typhoon are also preparing destructive cyber attacks. They're warning Australian critical infrastructure could also be vulnerable. And staff at the Melbourne Cricket Ground have not ruled out fencing off Yarra Park to control crowds outside the Taylor Swift concert next weekend. The MCG and Melbourne Lord Mayor Sally Cap have continued to discourage fans from gathering outside the stadium during the concerts if they don't have a ticket. There'll be more news at one. Oh my goodness, those queues for tickets. I don't know. I don't know about it, Evan. <laughs> what about you? Did you go to Tuzzy? <laughs> I don't know. Taylor I don't, Swift? I'm not, I'm not the biggest Tay-Tay fan, although I was very, very happy to queue a long way back to see Paul McCartney last oh. year. That was fun. Oh, uh, full, absolutely. You know, Dockland Stadium there, but MCG, full capacity there. That's going to be quite a sight. Even if you're not the biggest fan of her music, I imagine the atmosphere will just be unreal. I think it would be lit, but um, yeah, definitely Buy your tickets. Don't try and sneak in, like you said. Thanks, Evan. No worries. Thanks, Meg. And it's about time for weather now. We've had our news. We've got Michael Conway from the Bureau of Meteorology to tell us 
What's happening in the skies out there? Hello, Michael. <laughs> Hi, Meg. I, I, guess, I just feel like I don't need to explain much about what's happening out there in the skies. <laughs> it's, it's very sunny, isn't it? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, we yeah, love yeah. good news on this program. Yeah. Tell us about the sun. Sort <laughs> <laughs> of the mass of incandescent gas. Oh, no, no, no. Not sun. that. Not no, no, that. No. <laughs> temperatures. <laughs> okay. Temperatures, right. So uh, we've hit maximums. Well, we've hit temperatures 23 degrees in Hobart. We're going for 25. It's 22 at the moment in Launceston. And we're heading for 25. And the rest of the locations are around the low 20s for today. It's going to be similar tomorrow, just a, a few degrees warmer. So we're looking at 29 for Launceston and 23 for Hobart. There will be a bit of a change, though, as weak cold fronts coming through. Um, but that's, it's just very short-lived and a few showers, mainly about the west, very light, though. And then we're back into the fine weather again. So it, it's a day like today on Saturday with temperatures around the low 20s. Warming up Sunday, the uh, hot, hotter weather will come Monday and Tuesday next week with temperatures in the high 20s to low 30s in parts inland. Um, so, so very warm for those days. Mm. It's um it makes a slightly more boring weather segment, but it is lovely to hear <laughs> for those of us yes. who like the beach. Uh, any warnings sure. coming up? Yeah, Michael? we've got a yeah strong wind warning today for the lower east. Tomorrow there's strong wind warnings for all waters uh, except the central west, and for all southeast waters, inshore waters apart from the Derwent estuary. So pretty windy tomorrow. Uh, and oh, what have we not done? Coastal waters uh, swell. What are that looking like? People might want to take their boats out in this nice weather. Yeah, sure. So today it's a, it's a kind of complex picture, but west to northwesterly winds ten to twenty knots in the southwest. West to southwesterly winds ten to twenty knots in the northwest. Northwest to northeasterly winds ten to twenty knots elsewhere. Also reaching up to thirty knots about that times about the lower east. Tomorrow, though, uh, western northwesterly winds 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots in parts about the south, and then uh, tending to south to southwesterly 20 to 30 knots throughout the whole of the state during the day as that front comes through. The swell's about in the western south today. We've got a west to southwesterly at 1.5 to 2.5 metres. That eases to 1 to 2 metres tomorrow and then picks up again 2 to 4 metres from the afternoon. In the north, there's a westerly swell to 1 metre both days. And in the east, a southerly swell of 1 to 1.5 metres today, um, increasing tomorrow in the evening to 1.5 to 2.5 metres. Michael Conway from the Bureau of Meteorology. Thanks so much. Thanks for bringing us some nice weather. And um, I hope you bought your, your T-Swizzle tickets and you're not trying to sneak into the MCG. No, not, not me, but I got my whole family's going except for me. Oh. So, uh, oh. <laughs> they're all jetting off soon, so uh, it'll, it'll be fun for them, I'm sure. <laughs> well, have a good time at home, boring old Michael Conway. <laughs> See you later. Bye. <laughs> You're listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour with me, Meg Powell, bringing you the show today from Bernie. And just to our stories from earlier before about the closure of the Avebury nickel mine, the Tasmanian government has responded, Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe, saying he will continue to support affected workers at Avebury. I'll give you a little bit of an update on that soon. But first, 
We need to get to some other stories. We've got uh, the Fair Work Ombudsman, who is making surprise inspections of farms in Tasmania's north and northwest this week to check workers are getting the right pay. The inspections are focused on holding employers to account if they are not meeting their obligations. And Anna Booth is the Fair Work Ombudsman and oversees the National Fair Work Act. Here's what she has to say. Well, our inspectors are out in the field, Claire. You know, surprise inspections have been occurring all week of agriculture businesses in Tasmania's north and northwest. So that's in and around Devonport through to East Launceston and Cressy. And what has prompted the Fair Work Ombudsman to make these surprise visits? Uh, we have a proactive program that we've been running since 2021 um, where we aim to visit 450 farms in 15 locations um, uh, every year. Uh, and on this occasion, we've received intelligence from a range of sources, including anonymous reports and, and other sources um, indicating potential underpayments in this region. People are going directly to the Fair Work to say, look, this is happening. Can you please investigate? And then that gets logged in your records and then acted upon? That's, actually, that's, that's exactly right, Claire. So there's two main sources uh, of information. One is our anonymous hotline, which we encourage people to use, um, but also we have our info line where people do identify themselves. And when we see an increased frequency um, of people coming in on the info line, we also log that. Um, and generally, we get other information as well from organisations and indeed even from the media. And are there any primary production industries in particular you are targeting? Well, on this occasion, we're going to 20 farms. They produce berries, apples and pears. Um, I'm told that pastoral and viticulture businesses are also being inspected. How is the Fair Work Ombudsman checking staff are getting the right pay during these visits? And how long does it take to report back? The process is that the inspectors arrive, they speak to the farmer, uh, they speak to employees, uh, they speak to uh, labour hire companies, sometimes off-farm if uh, the labour hire company is the direct employer. So first of all, talk to people. Uh, and part of that, of course, is giving uh, the right information to people so that they can get it right, but also look at records as well to the extent that they're available. If they're not, they ask for them and later look at them. It can take some time. Of course, uh, that's not the only uh, area of work that we're involved in so these inspectors might be out on the 20 farms this week and then they'll have a whole lot of other work to do next week and the week after so in between all of that they're analysing everything and coming to a view about whether the farm has complied with the fair work laws or not and if it hasn't they'll have to do a deeper dive to see what particular aspects um, aren't correct and then after that they'll attempt to have the employees repaid and if that's not successful then issue a compliance notice and we'll um, take it from there. Anna, there's a wealth of information out there on what an employee is required to pay their staff. Why are people still getting it wrong or why are they avoiding the right thing to do? Look, it's a really good question and you rightly point out that there is a lot of information and in fact um, we have a special horticulture page on our website called the Horticulture Showcase. We also have, in addition to horticulture, we also have uh, information about other agricultural produce requirements. We also have a very specific section on piecework, which is a feature of the horticulture industry. So there is a wealth of information and we have an employer advisory service where employers can ring up, farmers can ring us and give us a particular 
a problem and we will answer that and do so in writing and, and we stand by what we've written. Then your question is, why don't they get it right? Well, uh, obviously there's a continuum of perhaps too busy, perhaps you know, going along the continuum, if you like, of uh, culpability, you know, just not, not interested, uh, perhaps not just not up to it, right through to the extreme end where it, there's a disregard based on, on, on cost pressures, so a willful intention to underpay because it will lead to um, greater profits for the business. Apart from visits from fair work, do dodgy workplace practices by employers get picked up elsewhere, such as the ATO? Is there another um, way that it can, they can be caught out? Many other regulators, of course, are involved in businesses um, from the ACCC to the to ASIC to the ATO to work health and safety regulators. There are specific labour hire regulators. There are state-based wage uh, inspectorates. Um, and we all cooperate together. Within the law, we will uh, work together. And it's highly likely that an employer who is not paying correctly will be discovered by some other regulator or indeed another workplace player, such as an employer organisation or a union. The investigations are part of the regulator's agriculture strategy, which began in December 2021, which you spoke of earlier. Under the strategy, the Fair Work Ombudsman is targeting more than 450 businesses in the hotspots. How do you determine what those hotspots are or where they are? So hotspots or, or particular targeted locations are determined by the intelligence we receive. So either our anonymous uh, reports, um, our info line, uh, media, um, other organisations that might give us information and we um, accumulate all of that uh, and keep looking at it. And then when we see an intensity um, of potential underpayments, we strike. Once you've done your investigations and your report, will the report be made public? So the result of this particular visitation program won't be one single report. It will be a series of investigations which lead to evidence. Um, some, of course, of the farms are going to be found to be compliant, which will be fantastic. And, and we have indeed in, in many cases in our past um, visits found whole regions that have cleaned their act up, which is really um, very pleasing. Yes. Uh, but uh, what we will be likely to do um, is to pursue those who are non-compliant and it will be iterative. So it'll depend upon the evidence gathered, um, the cooperation of the farmer. If the farmer um, pays the workers back and the inspector is satisfied that uh, it, their cooperation has been forthcoming and, and likely uh, non-compliance uh, is not going to occur in the future, then that will be the end of it. Um, but if they are not cooperative or they deny it and the inspector still believes they have underpaid, then we'll issue them with the compliance notice if that's um, complied with that's the end of it if they don't comply with that then we have the option of pursuing that in the court fair work ombudsman anna booth talking to claire burberry about the northern tasmanian farms that are going to be visited by inspectors to check workers are being paid the right entitlements had a couple of texts in uh to do with the avery nickel mine which we've been talking about this morning going into care and maintenance tasmania's only nickel mine following a string of similar stories over in wa um Texter Glenn says, Meg, a previous federal government spent $980 million subsidising our car industry with GMH. They then packed up and left Australia and went back to the USA. The Tasmanian government will readily subsidise AFL, but not industry valuable to this state. 
Glenn, thanks for that. Glenn, thanks for texting in. Uh, also, we've got a texter asking to please monitor the volume. <laughs> I'm listening on Channel 25 and the volume is all over the place. Thank you for sending that in. That could be a receiver, but I will readily admit that could be me and my butterfingers here in the studio. Let me know if your, your sounds get better. I'll keep a close eye on that. Eliza, I've been bewitched by you since we met. I propose we marry. Ugh. What is it? Zara is cancelling her subscription to the streaming service we're on. It's getting too expensive. How will she stay entertained? ABC iView. It's got drama, comedy, kids' shows, and it's all free. Well, what if we pay for her subscription? We could sell Winchester. It doesn't work like that. ABC iView. Always free. Always entertaining. And uh, just a little bit more on Avebury, coming in from Minister for Resources Felix Ellis, who says he's spoken with West Coast Mayor Shane Pitt today, and it's a matter of public record that this has been a complex situation for some time, but we will be there for those workers and their families to assist them through this challenging time. Good to hear you are listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour with me, Meg Powell, bringing you the show from Bernie. And we're moving over to wine now. Every crop grown in commercial agriculture will have a nuanced effect from the weather system it grows in. Heat can prompt early flowering, rain during cherry ripening can burst the fruit, and that's farming. Our next story heads to Nocton Vineyard in the Coal River Valley. And owner Alex Vandriel chats to Eliza Closer about the management needed to control funguses and hungry wildlife. Apologies, that is not the right audio. Let's try that again. Uh, The season started off pretty dry, and as a result of that, we had a fair bit of um, wildlife intrusion in the vineyard. A lot of the young shoots got chewed off, and we probably lost about three hectares. So since then, we've, um, we've we've revamped the fences, electrified them, made sure there's no shorts in the system, and that's now keeping them at bay. Um, And I reckon the reason for that intrusion of animals was it was very much a drought on the other side of the fence, and the vineyards are always green, and they're always attracted to new shoots and new growth in the vineyard. So there's abundance of wildlife, not just here, but from a lot of other properties around 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 the state, got very impacted by wildlife. Um, since then, um, everyone thought we were going to go into a drought year, which is a good thing for vineyards in some regards because we, we have water. If you've got irrigation, it, it makes no difference. In fact, you'll end up with a lot better growth, a lot drier season, little sort of disease. But as it's turned out, um, we started getting a fair bit of rainfall and so that made grass grow. Um, it started to get vines to grow. It's certainly been an, uh, a big season on impacting on for, for fungus d- disease issues. How much has the disease kind of impacted the crop this season? Um, fortunately, we've, we've been... Um, I've got a very good team, so I've got a, I've got a, a lot of people that go out and they recognise disease very quickly. Um, we've tried to spray ahead of forecasted rainfall events, and to date we've been pretty good. Um, We have had a little bit of downy mildew and that's just crept in over the last week or so um, due to that sort of more humid, um, cooler nights and 
and just that little bit of extra rain that's been sitting around and the extra canopy hasn't really helped because it's sort of reduced the air movement. Uh, a lot of people have been impacted by powdery mildew. Powdery mildew is probably a bit more insidious in terms that um, if you're starting to find it now, um, it could impact your fruit and once it gets into this fruit it sets this sort of a grey sort of mouldy blackish um, over the over the grapes and if you're harvesting that it gives you a very steely flinty sort of taste in your wine so it's not something you really want you want to try and eliminate it and the best way of doing that with powdery mildew is to actually hit it early and then you hit it again and you hit it again otherwise it becomes exponential so if you have 100 units in your vineyard next week it'll be a thousand then a ten thousand then a hundred thousand million and so if you're trying to hit it at a million it's very hard to kill it but if you keep hitting it at, at the hundred then it's very easy a much easier to control disease problem um and i've had a f- few friends talk about non-alcoholic wines and i was wondering have you ever thought about expanding into um non-alcoholic yeah viticulture and wines um so far we haven't done that we haven't ventured into that but there's an increasing demand definitely for non-alcoholic or reduced alcohol wines and that will probably happen i would say that would happen in the next five to ten years it will get phased in it's it's probably always a challenge as to how you go about doing that and what market you're going for and i I suppose if you determine what the percentage of the market is that's now wanting that wine then you just got to make your production according to those to that demand i guess uh, and that was Eliza Closer there, down south in wine country, lucky thing, uh, talking about funguses in wine crops. And we're going we're gonna to stick with fruit here because if you've been through puberty or menopause, you'll know all about hormones. But did you know strawberries can release hormones as well? They can get stressed. Nathan Tippendale is a research fellow at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture and he's about to spend the next few years stressing those poor berries out, all in the name of science. We're currently at the Forthside Vegetable Research Facility and we're standing inside a polytunnel. Uh, inside this polytunnel we've got, a, uh, we've got four hydroponic um, tables uh, on which we're growing uh, strawberry plants. And it's stinking hot in here, which really relates well to what you're studying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's very, very hot inside these polytunnels. And uh, polytunnels are the main way in which strawberries are grown in Tasmania. And that's really, really good for controlling uh, the environment in there. We can control uh, the temperature to some extent. Uh, We control uh, how wet it is. We can control the fertilisation they're getting. Um, It it protects them from uh, pests and diseases. They're up on tables so they don't get any soil-borne problems. Um, Birds don't get in there and eat the fruit. So growing in polytunnels has a lot of benefits, but um, one of the problems associated with it um, is that it can get very hot, even when it's not particularly hot outside. Right. What does that do to the strawberries? Yeah, so strawberries don't really like hot weather, um, particularly if it gets hot during the ripening um, time of year. So ripening is a suite of processes that need to happen all at once. So strawberries have to get larger, they get sweeter, they get softer, um, and they get redder. Now, the, the heat stress seems to interrupt this ripening process and decouple some of these things from the others. So in some varieties, you'll get berries that continue to go red, they'll continue to get sweet, um, but they won't get any bigger. 
right? In other varieties, you might end up with a berry that is uh, too soft at the end. So it's a nice sweet berry, but it's way too soft, right? Uh, because the heat has interrupted the ripening process somehow. Right. And so you're planning to study this. Can you describe for me how you're going to do that, how you go about that? Yeah, totally. So to understand a problem, we first need to replicate the problem in a controlled condition. So we're going to uh, deliberately stress out some strawberry plants. That's so mean. (laughs) For science, fair enough. Anything for science, anything for science. Uh, So we're going to deliberately stress out some strawberry plants. Then we're going to measure a range of things about the plants, right? So we're going to see... How does the uh, hormone profile change? Because like, uh, like us, like humans and animals, plants have hormones and they enable the plant to respond in a coordinated way to the environment. How does the hormone signaling change in response to these uh, hot days? Right? We're also going to look at changes in gene expression. Right? So looking at these things enables us to understand what's happening mechanistically in response to heat and that gives us some points at which we can, uh, that we can target for intervention strategies. So what we're going to do, um, the, the strawberries are grown in these uh, bags of coir, which is um, coconut husk and they have a nutrient solution that's pumped into that coconut husk and basically soaks it. So we can just pick up the entire bag and move it into what we call a growth chamber. Now a growth chamber is a cabinet, looks like a fridge. Um, it has a variety of lighting options in it. You can give it you know, high light or no light. You can control the day length, you can control the temperature, and you can c- control the humidity. So we're gonna, we're gonna stress these plants out by just putting them inside that chamber and uh, seeing them. what happens, cooking them, <laughs> yeah, seeing what happens. So are you telling me strawberries are a little bit like humans in that when they get stressed, they release stress hormones? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So they they release stress hormones. They need to release hormones anyway to... to, to enable the ripening process, but we think that that process is getting interrupted somehow by uh, by the heat and the the different levels of the different hormones are imbalanced. So these strawberries that we're looking at now, have you done anything to those? No, these guys are currently just chilling out. Um, they'll be stressed in a little while though. Poor things, poor things. Um, how long are you expecting this to take, Nathan? What what's the process of it? Uh, this is part of a, a big project. Uh, um, it, uh, funded by Hort Innovation. It's a five-year project, and um, I'm hoping that it'll take less than five years, though. Are there different varieties that would cope better with heat stress? Yeah, there are some varieties that cope better with heat stress, but the thing is that berries um, have, that have been bred for Tasmanian conditions are really made to grow in cool climates, right? And they thrive well in our cool climate. It's just that sometimes Tasmania gets quite hot, and that's, that's when it can really hurt us. And is that, I, I mean, I don't know if you, you're in communication with berry growers, I assume, for your research. Um, is that something that's playing on their minds just as the, the planet warms up and the weather changes? Yeah, definitely. Um, the growers that I've talked to from a variety of farms, that they were the ones who told me about this problem in the first place. I never would have known if they hadn't told me. So this research, research was designed uh, by basically driving around Tasmania and talking to as many berry growers as I could. Um, and this is a, a problem that a couple of them mentioned to me and they said it really impacted their crop. It can lead to like uh, 15% yield loss in some cases. So it, it is a big problem. Um, and it's definitely playing on their mind as they hear about the climate uh, potentially warming. It's going to be a bigger problem for them. It's also um, on the minds of uh, the breeders at the Australian Strawberry Breeding Program. And the two big targets that they have for their breeding are heat stress 
and uh, drought stress. So they, they really want berries that can cope with heat and can also cope with drought for the, for the temperate zone. They breed for three zones, they, and one of those zones is the temperate zone, and they're, they're really looking for berries that can cope with that increased heat. So the growers down here, they couldn't just uh, take a variety that's grown in Queensland, for example? Yeah, I mean, potentially they could, but I suspect that it wouldn't do well for, for most of the year in Tasmania, given the conditions we usually experience. So it really is for those, those spikes and those unusual uh, weather patterns? Yes, that's right, for when it gets hot. Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture Research Fellow Nathan Tippendale, who's going to spend the next couple of years stressing out some poor strawberries, all in the name of science, of course, all for a good cause. Someone who probably knows a thing or two about stress, I think. Some call him the stress king himself, Joel Reinberger. Uh, what's coming up on afternoons today? <laughs> Is that what they call you? I don't know. <laughs> That's an interesting invention of yours, Meg. I'm the most relaxed person I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. <laughs> oh, okay, well, Mr. Relaxed Man, what, uh, what's coming up for us in just uh, off now? We're, we're, we're going to be doing a, a bit of fishing today. Oh. We're going to be talking a lot of fish. Uh, now we're going to start out that there is a, a new uh, angling club in uh, in Oakland, the, the Dolverton Angling Club, uh, which is really interesting because you know you've got Lake Dolverton there, but it's been empty for half of the last two years that that, that lake, and now it's full regularly. It's weedy, and they've decided, you know what, we want fish, we want a good spot to fish. We've got it in our backyard, and they're they're starting working bees to clear the weed out, and they're you know going to get it stocked, and they're going to make fishing happen in their area, which I love the wow, idea. Wow, that sounds like a huge effort. Where do they get the water? Oh, look, apparently there's, you know, it is reliably full. I don't know okay. the story. That's one of those questions I've got for them. Okay. But it is, it is reliably full now, so I'm wondering if Inland Fisheries is in on it. Now, an interesting thing is there is that the guy who started uh, this uh, club, uh, Grant Wilson, says that when he was at high school, there was a trout hatchery in the high school. You did trout hatching classes as part of high school. Yes, yes. There's, I think so there's some schools around with some aquaculture, yeah. So he was really hoping that the school will pick that up again so that they can actually have the local kids at the school breeding the fish to go into the lake. And, it, you know, it turns that, you know, side of the town into a whole little, you know, tourism attractor. So it's a lovely idea. Uh, cool. We're also going to be talking uh, saltwater fishing with Rod Pern. Uh, who's from the Department of Natural Resources and Environment, because we got talking a little bit about Flathead last week with him. Mm. We thought we should have the full Flathead chat. What are the rules mm. now? How long are they going to be in place? Are they going to ban us from catching flatties altogether? Mm. I can certainly foresee that happening. And to talk about the dwarfing of the fish stock, basically human pressures on, on breeding have meant that the fish are getting smaller naturally, that adult fish are smaller and smaller, uh, which is not what any of us wants. No, that'll uh, be a hot one for the fishes out there, yeah. Yeah, every, every time a fish comes out of the water that's over a certain size, we eat it, and the small <laughs> ones we throw back. So the ones that are naturally small live, the big ones do not, and there you have evolutionary pressure. So we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be meeting a young guy named Pele from uh, the northwest of the state who is our haywire winner. So, and cool. he's done a story. He's done a story about fly fishing and about how much he loves fly fishing and how it's his happy place. Okay, strong um, theme. Strong theme coming through here today. Yeah. So he's he's going to be he's in Canberra at the moment as part of the big haywire do that they do at the end of the year. And uh, uh, yeah, he's going to tell us about uh, what fly fishing means to him and uh, how he's enjoying his trip. 
Gosh, I'll be curious to see the text messages coming in on those ones. Uh, Joel, I know that our fishers out there love listening to ABC Radio and commenting on things while they do. Absolutely. Good on you, Meg. Thank you. See you later. And that's all we have for the Country Hour today. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk honey. Uh, Honey in Tasmania, honey across the world, plus plenty more. See you then.